Hey, welcome to tonight's episode of California Haunts Radio. How's everybody doing? Inching closer to the 4th of July. Getting excited, I bet. Hey, my name is Charlotte, and I'll be your host for the next hour. I've got a great guest line. i got a great guest coming on. Um, wow, I'm just so in it. Uh, near-death experiences. I can't wait to talk to this gentleman. And i got kind of a couple of stories to tell you guys to kind of lead into this. Um, I wouldn't say they were near-death experiences, but they were kind of close. Um, Years ago, uh, my family had boats, and my father bought our first boat, and it was kind of rickety. My dad was one of these guys to start out used to see, you know, how things went with the family, and he bought this used boat, and it would always stall when we were on the river. And the Sacramento River is such that it was fairly shallow out for the first 10, 15, 20 feet, and then after 20 feet, there was this huge drop-off, so there was like, it would go down to like 40, 50 feet. So we're on the boat and it stalled, which was normal for which which was normal on a boat trip. And my mother and I were in the boat. And I think my niece was too at that time. And we were drifting and my dad was trying you know, we were trying to get the boat he was trying to get the boat started. And the boat was about to hit this really, really expensive ski boat. And I remember my mother looking at me going going, Well, jump out and and push the boat over and I said, I'm not jumping out, the water's too deep. I don't swim that well. You know, I can dog paddle and hold my own. And she got mad at me, went over the side, and got sucked underneath. Well, we were all panicking. And she popped back up. And when she came up, I helped her back in the boat. And she, I said, didn't that scare the heck, the, the bejesus out of you? I said, I mean, you know, you probably were you know, getting ready to drown. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? She said, no, I was real calm. When I realized that I was going to drown, I felt this calm come over me, and I and, and and I was ready to go. It didn't matter. So um, I held that with me for years, you know, thinking about that. And a few years later, just bef- just before I turned 21, I was in a car accident up in uh, Lake Tahoe, up at the most can you know what the what the canyon was. And I remember driving uh, my steering wheel locked. Later on, the cars got uh, recalled for that, and I got. Out of control, I ended up spinning across, and I went. It looked like I was going to go over the edge. There was still snow on the ground, and I didn't know at the time that there was one of those safety bar things, you know, on the side. But as I uh, as I went to impact with the bar, I thought, "Oh my God, I'm going to go over the edge." And then all of a sudden, I thought, "Wow, it's going to be a heck of a view." And I got real calm again, like like what happened to my mother, the hoe. You know, the, the, the whole oh well thing. And that's how I felt. And then I impacted with the bar, and that was the end of that. But maybe, you know, for some people, that's that's what it is. You know, when you know you're going to die, in, you know, violently or whatever like that, you get a really calm feeling. Because that's, that, that's what happened with me and my, my mother and I. Luckily, I had any other, you know, t- times to, do, to experience that. But it, it left an imprint to this day. You know, and here I am. I'm, I'm in my physicist, and I'm, you know. I can still remember experiencing that. Anyway, Rob is on with us tonight. I don't want to butcher his last name because I remember sitting in school and I have a real simple last name. And I remember sitting there and it would get butchered every time and I don't like butchering people's last names. So I'm going to bring him on and we get, and you, you can hear his story. He died twice. And he had an NDE twice. And he has a very, very fascinating story to tell about what he experienced. So let's do this. Hello, Rob. Hey, Charlotte. Good evening. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Oh, good. Good. By the way, the last my, my last name is, is uh, pronounced Gentile. 
Okay. See, I, I would have gone with the Gentile, so I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> it actually really is Gentile, by the way. But Okay. Um, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm originally from Pittsburgh, but it gets butchered all the time, like you said. There you so go. I just, you know, I go with Gentile. It's much easier. Well, see, when I hear Gentile, I think of Christmas Story. A Christmas Story? Yeah, and everybody tells me about the baseball player. Uh, I think it was Jim Gentile. I can't exactly yeah. remember. Yeah, see, I always yeah. think of Fred Gile, right? Fred Gile. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. Well, I was, uh, I'm a, a first-generation uh, Italian. My parents were immigrants. I was born and raised in a little steel town outside of um, Pittsburgh called El Equipa, Pennsylvania. And uh, a, a lot of famous football players came out of that area. Me, Joe Green, Joe Namath, um, Terry Bradshaw. I, must be something in the water, the iron in the water. I don't know. Um, so that's where I am um, from originally. And I've been uh, well, I'm in the steel business. I was, uh, I was the youngest of four boys, and I was the only one that stayed in the steel industry. My grandfather, my father, everyone worked in the steel industry. And uh, out of high school, I got transferred to uh, the sales training program and, and ended up in Dallas, Texas, and moved around. But really, for the past uh, about 20 years now, I've been, in, I've been in Charlotte, North Carolina. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and you wrote this this wonderful book to oh, let people you. know what it's like on the other side. And yeah. tell, us, tell, t t tell me about that. Well, I'll tell you, Charlotte, it was um, what happened to me was totally unexpected. You know, I'm a healthy, healthy guy. Uh, it was on January 26, 2016, just about five years ago, actually, that I had these uh, these bone spurs that I had to get taken off of my neck from sports injuries when I was younger. And they were causing, you know, pain in my neck and my shoulders. And I had gone actually back to Pittsburgh uh, to get this operation by a famous Korean doctor. And it was kind of interesting because people come from all over the world to see him and they go into the front of the neck and they move the esophagus aside and they go in and they drill out these bone spurs. So it was a very simple surgery. I was only in the hospital for one night and then they send you home. So I came back to Charlotte, North Carolina. And four days later, at the age of 56 at 11 PM, I had a massive heart attack in my bed. And the theory is now looking back uh, from all the doctors that uh, I met along my journey they think I probably threw a blood clot because it went right into my Widowmaker. Wow. So, yeah. So it was very, it was a fluky thing. So at about 11 PM, I'm screaming in my bed, flailing around like a fish. Uh, my wife turns on the lights, doesn't know what's going on. I have one child, my daughter, Maria, who's uh, special needs, total care. And she's uh, at the time she was 20. So, my wife calls 911. I don't remember any of this. I, I just passed out from the pain. I was relatively unconscious. Thank goodness the hospital is only three miles from my house. And I get rushed to the hospital. They know I'm having this massive heart attack in the ambulance. So when they get me into the ER, they put me in a room and they give me blood thinners and all the things they give you to stabilize you. So they got me stable. And something very peculiar happened. Uh, there was a nurse in the room, and my medical records, by the way, are very detailed. And when I wrote the book, I uh, went back, interviewed all of my doctors, got all of my medical records. Everybody confirmed uh, what's, what's happened to me. But I was laying on the gurney, and they thought they had me stable. And my wife, she, deep, she breathed this deep sigh of relief. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I sprung forward on the gurney as if somebody had grabbed me by my shirt and just pulled me forward with great force to get my attention. And my eyes popped wide open and I screamed the nickname Frosty. When I screamed, when I screamed that nickname Frosty, I fell backwards on the gurney, coded, code blue rang out in the hospital and a team of doctors rushed in. Now, what's curious about that is that Frosty is the nickname of my brother-in-law, 
And unfortunately, seven weeks before I died that night, he had taken his own life. And when he did that, he was uh, going through a divorce. He was living with his parents and he was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house. So about 5.30 in the morning, his mother called me and said, can you please come here? They only live about 35 miles from here. Can you please come and go up into the room and see if you could find a journal or a note or something that would give us a clue as to why he took his own life because he left his daughter behind. Mm -hmm. So I went up into that room seven times and picked through a rather gruesome scene. And finally, on my seventh trip up into that room, I did find a journal and gave it to the family. So that's what was curious about that. So, so what happened to continue with the story, code blue rings out. They rush in, uh, Dr. Patel, who's a little Indian woman, who's a very close friend of mine now. And they take my wife and they put her out in the hall. My wife drops to her knees, begins praying out to God to save me. Um, Dr. Patel and her team worked on me for 20 minutes. I was dead for 20 minutes. They could not find a pulse, but something, something possessed her to just keep working on me. And finally, she was able to maintain a slight enough pulse until the cardiologist got there. The cardiologist, he wasn't in the hospital that night, so the cardiologist was in route. So when he got there, <clears throat> he found the two stints in my Widowmaker, uh, the blockage put in two stints, but it was too late. I, deep damage had already been done to my heart. I went into cardiogenic shock. They intubated me and I slipped into a four day coma. Hmm. So that was the first part of, that was the medical part of what happened to me. But what's curious is, is that, um, so during this time, uh, my wife calls, or my wife called my oldest brother. He drives down from Pittsburgh. I was raised Catholic. He calls the local parish, even though we hadn't attended Catholic church down here. Uh, the priest comes in the middle of the night, you know, out of some movie uh, and anoints me with oil, gives me the last rites. Uh, neurologists were coming in and out of my room to see if I were brain dead during those four days. And on the fourth day, my doctor told my wife, he said, you know, we, we have to take the tubes out. And if he breathes on his own, then we'll, we'll see what we have. He might be a vegetable, but we can't wait any longer. So obviously they start, they pulled the tubes out. I started choking and, you know, I survived. But what happened was, is that my wife came to my, was the first one to come into my room when I came out of my coma. And she said I was like this little child. I was speaking in this, you know, high-pitched voice with this really rushed kind of, oh, you have to believe me, you have to believe me. And I said, uh, your brother came to me, Frost, he came to me when uh, I was either flatlined or in my coma. I don't know what happened. I mean, I didn't even know I died. She was telling me this and she said, oh my God, it makes sense now. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, right before you flatlined, you sprang up on the gurney and you screamed out his name. And she said, tell me exactly what did Frosty tell you? And I said, he told me I've made a big mess out of things and you have to go back and help clean things up, but tell my family I'm in a good place, which, I, which was very interesting to me because being raised Catholic, we were taught that if you committed suicide, it was the ultimate mortal sin. There was no pass go. You were going straight to hell. Right. So that was my first kind of like uh, awakening, sort of speak. So this whole paradigm shifted in me. And I said to myself, well, how can a loving God condemn somebody to hell? I mean, Frosty, you know, he had gotten he had gotten on drugs. He had been clean for years and years, but he was under so much pressure. He went out that night and and, and did some drugs and he was not in his right mind. So that was kind of like my, my first experience of my mind opening, my spirit opening to other possibilities. And I would find out later that it was Frosty really that was preparing me for what was to come in Chicago, which was my most profound and incredible near-death experience when I almost died again before my donor heart arrived. But 
What was curious, Charlotte, is so, so the second day out of coma, um, this beautiful Indian woman comes into my room and she introduces herself as Dr. Patel and she sits down beside me and at that time my arms were paralyzed and she put her hand on mine and she started to tell me about what happened that night and she began to cry and tell me how many times she almost lost me and so on and so forth. And then it was interesting, the conversation got very personal and she began to tell me about her father, which I thought was interesting because besides Frosty, there was something that was locked up in my subconscious and it just wouldn't come out. I couldn't figure it out, but there was something else that happened um, that night. And she said, you know, my father and I were so close. I was pregnant with my first child, a boy, and that's all he lived for was to see my little boy's face. And six months before uh, my child was born, he had a brain aneurysm and died. And she said, you know, I had, I had lost my faith. I became very bitter um, because I had always believed in, you know, a higher power. I believed in God. She was Hindu. And she said, but, you know, seeing you alive here just gives me hope again that maybe, maybe there's something more out there. And while she was telling me this story, the puzzle unscrambled and I finally figured out what else happened that night a male spirit had entered the room that I knew was her father speaking through me. And he kept on repeating the same thing over and over again. He kept saying, keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him. Keep working on him. And I told her that story. I hesitated because I knew that she probably thought I was crazy, but mm -hmm. she burst into tears. And I said, you've never been alone. Your father's always been with you. It was just an incredible um, moment for both of us. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That is it incredible. Was, yeah, it was, it was something else. So as you can imagine, um, the, uh, the next day, my the team of doctors came in and they said, look, Rob, you, your heart is so destroyed. The only way you're going to survive is a transplant. So the journey began in what I call, there's a chapter in the book entitled mm -hmm. uh, Seek, Seeking a New Heart. And the journey to find uh, a heart began. And I would never have dreamed that, you know, it was so difficult uh, to get a heart transplant because they're in such short supply. So I went everywhere to try to get a heart transplant, all of the, uh, the transplant centers in my region, and I couldn't get a heart anywhere and I, they put me in this crazy, this defibrillator vest that um, I had to wear 24 hours a day because my, every time my heart failed, this thing would shock me back to life. So oh. you talk about anxiety um, every time this thing would do that. And then they put me in this, uh, they, they put a port in my chest, which every 30 seconds, uh, to 30 to 60 seconds, it dripped this medicine on my heart. My doctor said, think of it of like STP. It makes the heart uh, pump faster and harder, but it'll help keep you alive. But the problem is, is that it makes the heart wear out really fast. So the clock is ticking to get a donor heart. So if you can imagine, so I had this vest on, I had this battery pack on my right shoulder that powered the vest. I had this pump and a battery pack on my left shoulder pumping this medicine on my heart. So I'm walking around like this cyborg creature um, trying to find a heart. But it was, uh, it was crazy because I, I work for a steel company that's privately held in Chicago. And I was just about to give up and, and resign from my job. So I called my boss and I said, look, I, I need a heart transplant. It's not looking too good. I'm not coming back to work. Um, and I've been with this company for 20 years. And he said, well, before you do anything, let me talk to the owner. So I had no idea that the owner of my company was a big philanthropist and donated a lot of money every year to the University of Chicago Medicine, and he was on the board. So he told the owner of the company, the owner of my company talked to the University of Chicago Medicine. And in two days, I got a phone call. And they said, if you come to Chicago, 
we will find you a heart within three to four months. Um, so my wife and I were like on an airplane two days later and I ended up in, in Chicago. Wow. This is interesting to me because I, my friends all know this. I have congestive heart failure. So listening to this gives me hope, you know, that if something goes wrong, that, you know, the, 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 there are places out there that, 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 that can help me, you know, because that's, that's the fear in the back of my mind always is, you know, one day the ticker is just going to stop and that's that. Well, I got to tell you, so I, of course, after transplant, I mean, after my heart attack, which was in, you know, which was in, you know, the last week of, of January, I didn't get transplanted until June 6th. And I had, I suffered with congestive heart failure through that whole time. I mean, the whole thing, you know, ankles always swelling. I mean, you know, water around my heart, diuretics. I mean, coughing up, up, yeah. Yeah, coughing. So I, I feel for you, Charlotte. But I can tell you this much. My next step, if I wasn't going to get a heart uh, in the Carolinas or anywhere, I actually called. Uh, I was going to go to Cedar sinai or one of the transplant centers in California because I was told that in California, there are, because there are more donors, mm-hmm. that I had a better chance of getting a heart in California. Cool. So I yeah, don't mean so, to say that to sound like a black <laughs> widow, but yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, um, so that might be something for you to, to take into consideration. <laughs> start, start looking <laughs> now, say, right? <laughs> I wake up every day thinking, "Am I going to make it today?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Start. So start looking for heart transplant centers now. So, um, so anyway, I ended up in Chicago, and I was my heart was so weak. When I got there, the, the doctors looked at me and they said, we have no idea how you're even walking around, um, it, but we're going to figure out a way to keep you alive until a donor heart comes. So I was admitted on April 24th, and I had this incredible experience. One of the most famous heart surgeons in the world, he's an Indian man by the name of Dr. Juvenandan approached me and he said, you know, I've been working on this uh, heart pump for a number of years. And he said, I think you're a good candidate for it because what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to put a a cut in your chest here. We're going to fish this little balloon pump down through your aorta and out of the left side of your body are going to be these wires that are going to stick out with a titanium tube. And I've developed this uh, this pump. It's about the size of a lunchbox. And he said, you'll be able to walk around so you don't atrophy too much and stay healthy until the donor heart arrives. And it, this thing should keep you alive, even in your condition. And I said, wow, that's really incredible, Doc. I said, how many people have had this thing? And he said, well, that's just it. He said, uh, we've used it on cows and, and a couple of pigs. <laughs> Um, so he said, you're pretty much going to be our first human clinical trial. They had it in one other gentleman, um, but but he only had it in for like 48 hours and his donor heart showed up and he said, we need three weeks of, of data in order to take this thing to the FDA and get it approved. And I said, well, let me ask you if, how many people can this thing help if it works? And he said, I'll tell you, we're going to, we could change the history of cardiac care because People like you can wait at home until the donor heart arrives and walk around and it'll sustain you. And I said, well, sign me up. It's the best thing I ever did. So I made medical history with the, uh, with the heart pump. It's called the New Pulse. And now many, many people across the country have had it. It's in, it's in uh, a lot of hospitals throughout the country. So it was a, it was a pretty cool thing. That's but, awesome. Yeah, it was really awesome. Um, but you know, what happened was, is that even with the new pulse, and even with the medicine dripping on my heart and everything they tried to do for me, I'm about 172, 173 in weight. I had atrophied down to 138. And there's some other, uh, which I don't want to be a spoiler for the book, but there's, right, there's right. some, there was, there right, was some right. other medical issues that I was fighting with at the time. Um, so right before my donor heart arrived, my heart pretty much gave out again. 
And this is where, Charlotte, I had my most profound near-death experience. And it was the hardest part of the book to write. It, the book took me three years to write because I could only write from 7.30 in the morning, I mean, 4.30 in the morning to 7.30 in the morning before I went to work. But this part of the book is the shortest chapter in the book and the most difficult to write. And the chapter is entitled Into the Ethereal because there are, there's really no language for it. There's really no way to explain. And, and after I wrote it, um, and particularly, I think you heard me on Coast to Coast, I, uh, I had a lot of people contact me and then other people who have written books on NDEs contacted me and said, hey, look, we all go through this. Um, you're not going crazy. But what happened to me in that moment, Charlotte, is that when I just, when I just gave up my, my soul, essentially, and said, do with me what you will, and my heart was failing, in that moment, and really nobody knows how long uh, you're there, but the chapter is entitled Into the Ethereal. And in that moment, I was taken up into this timeless place. It's the only way that I can explain it. I found myself all of a sudden standing in the middle of nowhere. And the best way for me to describe this is it's like, it's kind of like looking outside an airplane window on a clear day. You could see everything but nothing at all. I mean, it, you, could, you could look out there, there's all this blue sky, but you're really not looking at anything. And mm -hmm. that was my first part of the experience. I was standing in the middle of nowhere, looking around, and I could see myself in my green hospital gown, but I looked, I looked healthy. And at the same time, I could, I could look down and see myself lying in my bed, you know, 138 pounds, looked like a skeleton, I was a green, uh, with, the, with the new pulse pumping my heart, all the IVs, I could see that and yet see myself standing in the middle of nowhere. And it was like this infinite, timeless, there was no time there, infinite, timeless expanse that seemed to just stretch into infinity. It was almost as if somebody had picked up, picked up the grains of my being like, mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're at the beach and you pick up a handful of sand and throw it into the wind, that's what it felt like. It felt like that I was everywhere at once. I was just expanded into this place. And knowledge of how the universe worked, all of it was so simple to understand. It was, I was getting all of these downloads like, oh my goodness, it's that, that's how it works. This is so simple. And I had, this, I had this incredible life review of myself and of others, which I found to be a very fascinating part of that experience because I could see nurses and doctors coming in and out of rooms. And it was curious to me how I was only able to see the ones that I had judged and made negative assumptions about which was very curious because, you know, it was such a harsh lesson in, in judging people and making assumptions. So I saw some of the nurses that I had negative feelings about and made these judgments about. And what happened is, is that in that moment, like I was watching the, the, a trailer to a movie, their lives started to go um, in regression and I could see their lives going from where they were in adulthood all the way back to childhood. And anytime something happened like abuse or um, a per poor personal choices or um, addictions, things like that, that circumstances out of their control, um, it seemed like the film would just stop for a second. Enough for me to say, wow. And, and when it was over, it was like, I, I understood, it kind of like presented this portrait of who this person had become and why. And in that moment, I thought to myself, and then I had a life review of myself and the harshest things that I had judged myself for and some of my most shameful mistakes. And I remember thinking to myself, how could I ever judge those people 
so harshly? And how could I like ever judge myself so harshly for mistakes that I've made in my life? And that was a beautiful uh, part of my experience. Mm -hmm. But then the next thing that happened to me, and it's hard to explain this, but I, I, I'm able to articulate it a lot better in that chapter. Um, because there are no, for me, and I know every, the ones that I've read, everybody's experience seems to be a little bit different. But in that place, there was no language. Uh, there was no smell. There's no touch. The five senses really didn't have any functionality in that place. The, the only thing that uh, seemed to be like it is here is that I was able to, to view light and light itself seemed to have more of an expansive uh, effect. There were multiple colors there, but there was this incredible, peaceful, spiritual light that I knew it was the light that animated all life because I truly believe now after this, this experience that we're spiritual beings living inside these fragile clay vessels having a human experience. I'm convinced and no one will ever be able to change my mind about that. So I was standing there and all of a sudden I, I saw and became part of this incredibly beautiful gigantic interactive web that was made of twinkling lights and i knew that web was the web that binds us all binds all life together and the best way for me to, to describe this web is that it looked like it was made of trillions and trillions of neurons we all know what a neuron looks like from science class uh, in high school it has a nucleus and then it has these tentacles and mm -hmm. dendrites that are woven together. And I somehow knew that each nucleus represented a life and it had a spark of light or what I call a quark of light inside each nucleus. And I knew that that represented a life and all of it was woven together and made this beautiful tapestry of twinkling lights that just seemed to stretch into infinity and hang on the ceiling of the universe. And there were some parts of the web that were darker than others. But I came to realize that the, the darker parts of the web were, were not where human beings were emanating light. And I don't know if it was due to them not living their purpose or uh, being violent or angry here in the temporal world because I've come to believe and understand from my experience that this web that I saw in the ethereal that binds us all is a reflection of what we do here on earth. Hmm. But, but I knew while I was in that place, it was a message of unity and oneness. And I was, I was not my race, my body, my religion, I was one with everything and part of this divine love and light. And it was there that I understood that God uses light to create, heal, and transform us. And when I, when I came back out of this experience and I began to research, and that's why the title of the book is Quarks of Light, because I understood that these quarks are the smallest elements and building blocks of matter. And they combine, there are several quarks that they've discovered. And these quarks, they combine to create infinite possibilities in the universe. They combine to create a tree or a person or a dog or a plant. And these quarks are made of light. So, I believe that this is what the creator uses. Because when I was in that place, I said to myself, this is so simple. Of course it has to be the same formula. This is the only way it can be done. It's only us that make this so difficult to understand. But there, it was very simple. And I, I also understood that, you know, we, we don't create reality. Reality, it's already created. And for me to, to have any question, 
answer. All I had to do was observe and, and I understood it. It wasn't like, you know, I had to ask all of these questions. All I had to do was think about it because their language is kind of like uh, telepathic and, and synchronist, synchronistic. It's like, all you have to do is think about it and then you, you kind of like feel it, absorb it. You just know. It's kind of like intuition. Mm -hmm. That was my experience. Um, and I did not see, because everyone asks me this, and, you know, I, I did not see angels. I didn't see, um, and, and being raised uh, Catholic, being raised a Christian, I was kind of disappointed that I didn't see uh, Jesus Christ. I didn't see uh, any benevolent beings at all. Instead, God chose to express through kind of these imprints and concepts that I fully understood. In other words, when I was there, I felt and heard in this unspoken language of the ethereal, I am the divine. I am omnipotent. This is your real identity. And that one really struck me because I really believe now that when we understand that our real identity comes from God, we can do anything with our lives within reason. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. That certainly is. When you were going through your life review, did you think that it was um, like a lot of people think it's judgment day, you know, about the stuff you've done in your life. Did you, did, did you feel it was like that or was it just a review to let you, to, to let you ponder over stuff that you've done in your life? You know, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was being judged. I, I, I did feel like, you know, it's kind of like, I, I really believe that we're all born with a, with a moral compass. I believe that we're all born good and mm -hmm. that it's the vicissitudes of life. It's what I call HT, home training, um, all of these other things that drag us into the darkness in our lives. But I, but I do believe that we know when we're not doing something right. And I'm, and I'm not, you know, in the, take mental illness and some of these other things out of it, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but, but by and large, in the main, we know when we do something right and wrong. So my review was more of like the universe holding up a big mirror in front of me and saying, see, and, and that's where um, I myself had felt some shame and some guilt about things and, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, so it was kind of interesting that, that it was in a, it was a very peaceful way of showing me that, you know, hey, you don't have to live this way or you, you don't have to make these choices and, and you can, you can change things because guess what? It's all about free will. Every day we make these choices and that we have, we have control over. Do, were you able to see, um, I read your book. I'm not going to give out any secrets either, but were you able to see how your actions caused, uh, you know, the the reactions down the line, you know, like 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 let's say you were angry with somebody for some reason, or you did something to, unwittingly to somebody, you know, without thinking it was going to have any ramifications. So were you able to see that how how your actions affected other people? Um, it was done in a. It was actually part of that whole life review. Yes, mm -hmm. where I saw that absolutely. And I think that what we have to understand, and this is one of the uh, many, many messages that I got when I was there. And I'm actually glad you brought that up, Charlotte, because when I was there, I, I knew that if I hurt myself, when I was part of this interactive web that binds us all, I knew that if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I loved, the light would spread. Mm -hmm. And even, even Frosty, my brother-in-law, he had regrets. I felt his regrets in that place uh, of what he had done. So, and, and you know, there's, there's so much collateral damage that you read the book, so you know there, there's, there's more to the story, but there's so much collateral damage. And suicide is rampant in our society now, and I just don't know where this comes from people feeling that they're unworthy and it's it's something that i'm not going to get on my soapbox about but 
Mm -hmm. I, wish, I wish that people would understand that when they hurt themselves, they hurt everyone around them, regardless of they think that they're not loved or they're not important or they don't have a purpose because we all do. Absolutely. I lost a cousin to suicide also. And there is a lot of, there is a lot of ricochet, you know, uh, you know, they not only hurt themselves, it just, it, it, the whole family is affected. Everybody, oh, yeah. everybody yeah. who knows them, because, you know, you spend the, you spend the next 34 years and even until the time of your death, wondering what you could have done to help that person or why. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Things that you don't even think of until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So what happened after you, um, or, or how did you end up coming back out of that? Well, how I ended up coming back out of that is, um, it's the experience that changed my life forever. And I mentioned earlier that I have a, uh, my only child, my daughter, mm -hmm. she's 25 now, but Maria has Rett syndrome. It's a very rare neurological disease. She's completely handicapped, total care. She can't, uh, walk, talk, feed herself. And it's been one of the things that I've, you know, struggled with my whole life. And um, we've taken her everywhere to try to find a cure, spent our 401ks, done everything we possibly could. And, um, you know, I saw her in that place. And it's a very emotional thing for me to talk about it. <clears throat> but I saw Maria in that place. And she was there and she was perfect. She was absolutely perfect and whole. And she has this smile that in the temporal world here, in the physical world, that sometimes I, I just don't know. Uh, she suffers a lot. She has a seizure disorder. And, and when she's suffering sometimes, she has this little smirk on her face that I could never figure out. But she gave me all the answers that I needed there. Because when I saw her there standing in the middle of nowhere, perfect, she had this incredible, beautiful light, this spiritual light coming through her eyes. And I knew it was the light of God, that spiritual light that animates all life. And standing in the middle of nowhere in that unspoken language of the ethereal, I asked her, I said, Maria, we don't know what to do for you anymore. We've taken you everywhere to try to cure you. I don't know what to do for you anymore. When you have seizures, we've done everything that we can. I, I know how I've longed my whole life just to hear your voice, just to hear you say, I love you, Daddy. Because I know you have such a great little personality in there, and, and I, don't, I don't know what to do. Please tell me. And she spoke three magic words to me that have changed my life forever. And she said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I cried out into that vast, infinite, timeless place. And I said, I never want to leave this place. And when I said, I never want to leave this place, that's when I found myself back in my bed. And that was the wow. end. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And then you woke up, right? And this was after they put the heart in or how'd that work? No. And okay. it's kind of interesting. So I found myself back in my bed and I thought to myself, I, I realized that I just had an experience, mm -hmm. a very profound experience. And I wasn't on any, any kind of drugs that would make me hallucinate, none of that. And I knew that I had this profound experience and this peace washed over me that I can't even begin to explain. And I remember lying there thinking that, you know, if a donor heart doesn't arrive and I pass away now, it's okay. Because I know that Maria is perfect in spirit. She told me so. And even though she's struggling here, I'll never, if I live, I'll never stop trying to help her. But I know she's perfect. Now I know what that little smirk means. And I was at Charlotte, I was in total peace. And it was kind of interesting because when they took me into surgery shortly after that, uh, my doctor, when I came out of transplant, told me, he said, you know, when we were taking your heart out, 
if we hadn't taken it out in that second, you would have gone back into cardiogenic shock and died. He said, because as we were taking the heart out, your, um, your widow maker, your main artery, where the doctor had put the two stents in, completely collapsed. Wow. And it, was, it was ready to collapse. And if we hadn't gone in in that moment, if your donor heart hadn't showed up in that moment, you would have, you would have died. Hmm. Yeah. Did you, um, were you able to ask your daughter if, if she remembered seeing you or contacting you during this time? You mean in that place? Yes. No, I think that, you know, and this is hard to understand. Marie and I have always had this really incredible spiritual connection. But for example, like when I was away, because I had to go get the heart in Chicago. So when I was gone, because I had to live for, in Chicago for a year after mm -hmm. heart transplant, because you have to live in the hospital. You're very fragile after that first year, and they're responsible for you. And curiously, while I was gone, Maria didn't have seizures. So I had, I had talked to her the way I talked to her. We communicate uh, kind of spiritually, telepathically with our eyes, with our spirit. And before I left that morning to go to Chicago, I went into her room and I talked to her. And she kind of like, I knew that she had given me permission with her eyes to leave. Mm -hmm. And when I came home after heart transplant, after that year, it's, it's like, we just, we, we have this bond now even stronger than we ever had. And, um, it's kind of funny because we have some caregivers that help, help us and she can actually, I can tiptoe into this house and she'll come up, she'll wake up out of her nap. She can kind of smell me, they say. <laughs> um, she, she knows when I'm coming. So we have this really strong connection. So I, I know that she understands uh, that I saw her in spirit. And it's, a, it's been an incredible, an incredible thing. That is incredible. So when you get, when you, when you, once you got your heart transplant done and, and you woke up, and what, what did your wife think of this, of this part of the story? She, I mean, listen, after, <laughs> after her brother came to me and everything <laughs> that we've been through together, uh, she was not surprised whatsoever um, what had happened to me. And, and actually, it took me a long time uh, to tell her what had happened because there was just too much going on. I mean, her, she was flying up to Chicago as often as she could. She has a full-time job. She's a pharmacist. And um, so it was difficult for her. And I just didn't want to lay more on her than needed. And actually, it was in Chicago when I had to live there alone for a year. That was the genesis for the book because I was able to uh, meditate and pray and dig out my journals and I journaled through this whole experience. I had actually started journaling when Maria got sick at two years old. So I was able to start putting all these pieces together and researching and, and figuring all these things out um, and putting it, putting it to paper. So it was, I think it was uh, when she came to see me, I think it was like six months after my heart transplant that I started to, slowly give her some of the details as to what happened that's just it's incredible it's, it's an incredible story it really is an incredible story one thing i was i was wondering about um the story too is that a lot of people that like like, like your first experience a lot of people feel like when it's their time to come back they feel like like they get pulled back into their body did you have that sensation at all or did you just wake up and you were in your body yeah, I just, I just uh, woke up and I was in my body. Yeah, there, I didn't, I have heard that too. That mm -hmm. There's kind of like this, even when people, um, and I've heard a lot of people now, because I've been on several podcasts and some panels, I've heard people talk about that during their near-death experience, that they felt like their spirit was ascending. Mm -hmm. um, that was not my experience. I just... When I resigned my soul and I knew that I was going to die again, uh, I just I was just there. It was kind of kind of an interesting, kind of like what my mom and I experienced 
it, real close, that whole calming feeling. There you go. Now, my father um, had a near-death experience. Uh, he was in the oh. hospital in his 80s with pneumonia. And he told us, he said, the weirdest thing happened. I was laying in bed, and I thought I woke up, he said, but I was in a coma. Because they told me that they were going to call you guys because that they were going to come in with the, you know, with the machines and everything. And he said when he woke up, he saw a dog that he, because uh, he had been in, the, in World War II. And he brought this dog home. It was, it was one of those, you know, bomb-sniffing dogs and all that, one of those trained dogs. And he, he had arranged to bring it home. And he had it for years. It was one of his favorite dogs. And he said that he knew he was ready to die because the dog was at the foot of the bed. Uh-huh. Yeah, I he, believe and, that. And he walked towards it, and he, he petted it, you know, wow. and he had a conversation with it. And he said then the dog just simply really quietly just turned turned and went the other way. Interesting. And he, yeah, and he said at that point he knew that he wasn't going to die, that it wasn't his time yet, because the dog would have got, you know, waited for him to go. Wow. And then yeah. he went back into his body and woke up or, or whatever happened. But that's, that's Very, what he said. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. 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 Huh. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Let's see what yeah, it ah, is. Here we go. People here on Earth have a spirit elsewhere. Okay. Question in the room, and I don't know if you know this, but the question is, do people here on Earth have a spirit elsewhere? Have a spirit elsewhere? Yeah. Like maybe along the lines of what you were saying, like 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 like, like when you were up there in the web is up there. And part yeah. of you was still up there and you know your life's laid out a certain way. Oh, I definitely, oh, I definitely believe that because how could it not be since we're spiritual beings? Um, mm -hmm. You know, this vessel that we're in to learn our lessons, to fulfill our purpose, to do what it is that we have to do here is, is something that in, in that ethereal place, heaven, whatever you want to call it. And I, I don't, I really don't believe that I was in heaven. I believe mm -hmm. that I in an in-between place in, in, in between spot yeah yeah um sure i i absolutely believe it because i believe like i mentioned that what we do here on earth is it affects our spirit it's kind of like this mirror and that was part of my life review to understand that and just like just like frosty you know even though he was gone i could feel his spirit in that place regretting what he had done Mm -hmm. So absolutely, yes, I do believe that. So um, it took you three years to write the book, because like you said, you, you were writing early in the mornings before you went to work, plus you were helping to take care of your daughter. Right. Um, yeah. Was it hard at first to write it? Did you have to, uh, because you know your story is terrific, did you have to do an outline and all that stuff to write the book? You know, what I did was um, I did a chapter outline, because it was very difficult it was very difficult to start. And one of the things that I that I learned through my near-death experience was to ask spirit to help. And that was, um, and, and then I found out that, you know, writers and poets and musicians and everybody else have been doing this for centuries. <laughs> because, um, so I, before I would write, I would say uh, a little prayer, I'd go into meditation and I would ask, the Holy Spirit to speak through me and not from me. I wanted the words mm -hmm. through me from that divine place and not from me. And when I did that, when I started every day with that prayer, some call it the muse, some call it the Holy Spirit, some call mm -hmm. it comforter, whatever you want to call it. But I found that when I did that, even though some mornings, Charlotte, I'm going to tell you, I'd sit here with a pen, and this is the writing desk that I'm, I'm uh, Skyping on, but nothing would come. Very aggravating. And then some days it would come so fast that, you know, I would just be tearing sheets off the, throwing sheets left and right just to get to the next page, uh, you know, to scribble stuff out that would come through me. So I think that that's a very powerful very powerful way. And I have a, a cousin that's a musician, uh, that lives in New York, and he plays on Broadway. And I was talking to him about it, and he says, well, hey, of course, of course, that's how we do it. I mean, most musicians don't know anything about music. They just let this information flow through them. I think it was, um, 
Paul Simon said, someone asked him how he wrote his songs, and he said, I just, I sit down at the piano every morning and I, I wait for the show to start. <laughs> so he just waits for that inspiration to come through. That's interesting because I'm a journalist and yep. um, I also have a couple books that I'm writing. I've been writing, I've been writing for years, you know, because in between taking care of my family, you know, my, my elderly parents and stuff, it's just, you, you got to sit down and get that going. And I can tell people, you know, honestly, it's not the easiest thing to write. Even even as a journalist working stories, you know, news stories, you have to sit there and really think about what you're going to write and how, and how you're going to make it plain and simple so people can understand. You Absolutely. Know? So I admire you for taking the time to do what you did because you're, you're a non-writer. And I mean, I can't imagine somebody who hasn't been trained as a writer having to sit down and do that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's... You know, I learned that if you really, if you really put your mind to it, you could, you could pretty much do anything. It's, it's a matter of, and I had to learn this the hard way. If you show up, and I learned that I had to show up at the same place at the same time every day, and, and that's where the muse will find you. But there's, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you can't drive a car without getting in it. So you have to show up. You have to be committed to do the work. And somehow when you do that, the universe kind of gets behind you and supports you. And one thought leads to another. And, and that makes you go research. And, you know, and for me, and, I, and I'll tell you, part of the secret of my book was, like I said, is that I've, I've journaled most of my life on and off. Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly through those difficult moments, difficult times when Maria almost died several times, you know, living in and out of the hospital for months on end, I would journal as a way to deal with things to get it out of me. And to go back into those journals and to pull those memories out in real time is a very powerful thing because, the, you know, your memory plays a lot of tricks on you. But if you journal and you have the, the, you know, the thoughts and the feelings of what's going on in that moment, and you can draw from that, it was an incredible help to the book. I have a question, uh, and uh, Tricia, how do you think what you experience relates to, the, to those who are able to leave their bodies in their deep meditation or night sleep, and who then travel and see uh, real things that, that can be verified after they wake? How do I feel about that? Um, or how, how do you think, you know, what, what your experience relates to that? I think that there, those are two different experiences. I actually belong to a meditation group. And it was actually one of the pediatric neurologists that I've known who, who wrote the foreword to the book, who's been, my, who's been Maria's doctor for about 12, 15 years now. Um, he has been able to do that he, through meditation, he has been able to, in his mind, leave the body, travel places, see things, um, sometimes get gets thoughts and, and information and help on, on how to help patients. So yeah, absolutely. And I've been a meditator uh, on and off most of my life because I was in, uh, involved in the martial arts um, in, in my younger years. I learned how to meditate and discipline my mind in a, at an early age. So, yes, I believe that that is possible to do that. But I can share this with you. My experience, when you have a near-death experience, it's a completely different experience. When the veil becomes so thin and you're in that place, in that halfway place, where you, can, you feel like you can almost reach out and, and touch God, um, that's a completely different thing. I really... I would be skeptical if anyone can get there because there's something about the body losing its function, the body losing the ego, the body losing uh, these things that somehow makes that veil thinner. I really don't know what that is, but I could tell you that it's real because that's, and I'll tell you why. So that year that I had to live near the hospital, the first six months I fell into a deep depression because even, and, and I knew that I was brought back to help my daughter get through this life, to, to help my wife, 
to tell my story. But to be honest with you, Charlotte, I did not want to be here, mm -hmm. period. And because nothing can compete with the love and the peace and the oneness of being in that place, absolutely nothing compares. So I went through this really difficult period for the first six months. I'm telling you, talk about meditate. I would meditate several times a day, trying to get back up into that ethereal place and fail and fail and fail and fail. I could not re recreate that experience. I could not get back there. And I went through this very difficult time until one of my colleagues from work, believe it or not, uh, sensed that I was going through a, a bad a bad period. And he and he brought this, and I worked for a Chinese American owned company. And he brought a, a Chinese pastor from his church to come visit me one day. And I'll never forget, it's in the book, and, and his name is Pastor Man. And Pastor Man and I were sitting out uh, on the porch of my apartment and I started to, you know, tell him what I was struggling with. And that was a watershed moment for me in my journey because I told Pastor Man about all my guilt not wanting to be here and all the things. And he looked at me and he said, you know what your problem is? And I said, no, please tell me. And he said, you have, you have gotten too fat in spirit from your journey. And the only way that you're going to be able to get thin again is to give back to God and everything that you do here by treating people with kindness, with respect, by treating others the way you want to be treated. And he said, the other thing you have to learn how to do is see the divine in everything, in the next person, in nature. And when he said that I had to learn how to see the divine in everything here on earth, it, it struck me. And when he left that day, I started to uh, to walk through the park and walk through the neighborhood. And I consciously made the effort to, to see the miracle, to see the divine in other people, in nature, in plants. Uh, and that was my shift back into the world. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to, you know, to enjoy life and to, and to see the divine in others and to, to live out this mission that I feel like I was given to, to spread this light. Fantastic. How can people find you? Well, um, you can purchase my book on Amazon, which you've put up a couple of times, Quarks of Light and Your Death Experience. And you can also reach me through my website. My website is real simple. It's Rob A, my middle initial, Rob A Gentile, G-E-N-T-I-L-E.com. Sir, thank you very much for coming on and telling your story. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. It was absolutely fascinating. I, I, I'm just so pleased to help you get the word out about this fantastic experience that you had. Because oh, this is incredible. So and it makes appreciate people less... It makes people less afraid, you know, to die if they get in that situation. And yeah, wow, just wow. Yeah, well, for me, like you know, it, it's freedom because I yeah. I know where I'm going. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great Fourth of July, sir. But thank you, thank you, thank you. You're quite welcome. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. Okay, well, that was really cool. I learned a lot too. Let me get this up here. I wanted to thank you guys because um, I've been watching the numbers for the show and it's really interesting. Uh, this show also goes out as a podcast on rss.com and it plays over it on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and and uh, Spotify and a couple others. And I've been doing this as a, as a regular podcast since March 29th. And since that time, we have had 685 downloads of this show. People have been listening. So people are definitely listening. And over on YouTube, where uh, it's a video show, obviously, there have been 488 views of this show. And that's that. And then when you, when you add in Facebook, we're, we're over 1,000 views. We're over 1,000 views on this show. So uh, we're doing really good. And I can't, do that without, you know, I can't do that without you guys and your help. I mean, the more people you refer us to, you know, maybe four or five people after each show that you hear, even, you know, if you like the show, 
keep referring us over. Let's get those nuts, you know, get, keep those numbers growing because I can tell you in the last two months, as far as the podcast goes, we have grown. We grew by, we grew by four, was it 60 people this month? We'll probably grow a little more. You know, we grew, we grew by 120 people last month downloads. So it's, it's really, really impressive. You know, we're starting to catch on. It's a slow process, but we're starting to catch on. So please share this with the four or five people that you know. And you know what? If you didn't like the show, share it anyway. Give it to your enemies. Get them to, get them to take a look at the show. We do have a website at www.CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And I'm going to be doing a massive update on that tonight because I got behind a little bit. But, um... Geez, yeah, we're just we're starting to grow and we're starting to catch on. So let's keep the flow going, you guys. Keep the flow going. Anyway, uh, Monday we're going to change pace a little bit. I'm going to put my journalism hat on and we're going to be talking about the early Apollo flights. So uh, that's going to be a pretty good show. And then the following Wednesday we're going to be talking Bigfoot with Mark with Mike Patterson, and he's got some interesting Sasquatch voices that we need to hear. And if this stuff. Um, turns out to be true, it's going to put all the research of Bigfoot on its ear because he has some incredible stuff. But anyway, um, I hope you guys have a safe 4th of July, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you and uh, to, to ha- have you listen to me on Monday. Okay? Let me lean forward a little bit here, and don't go away yet. I've got links to Rob's uh, website and where you can get his book, and then we'll close the show.